All right. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 9, please. I'd like to go before the Lord with a word of prayer. And Heavenly Father, I just ask you to look down on us today here as we're gathered in your name and, and before your presence, Father. And I just ask that you'll take this message and, and the word, your word, and uh, just cause it to affect all hearts. We have people here at all different levels, at all stages. And I just ask that, that you'll speak to everyone here, that somehow you'll speak to everyone here to encourage them and to convict them and, and uh, just that we can know you better and your ways better. And I just thank you that you'll do that, Lord, that you're here in our midst to speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll begin. I want to read in uh, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he writes, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecuted. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. So I've been praying, and the Lord put this message on my heart before Paul spoke on Wednesday. After he spoke, it just seems like I believe he's given us this, this church today for whoever this is for. It'll kind of tie in last Sunday and Paul's message that he preached on returning to our first love. And, you know, we're going to speak on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. This conversion was probably one of the greatest events in history. So outside of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say no man has probably changed the course of history like Paul. So he's responsible for spreading the gospel throughout most of the then known world. He is responsible for writing most of the New Testament that we have. He's responsible for setting forth and establishing all the great doctrines that we have as a church in the New Testament. And it was said of Paul and Silas when they were in a town that they have turned the world upside down. And that's literally what he's did. His influence is still felt. Just one of the greatest men. He was a remarkable man with what happened. But the Apostle Paul was not always the Christian man that we think of. And we forget that. It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul wrote, It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he said, Among whom I am chief. I'm telling you, he's saying this is a trustworthy statement. It's something you can take to the bank. It's worthy of all acceptance. There is no need to reject this. That the Lord Jesus Christ had a purpose coming into this world. This world is a mess. Through Adam, it's, 
Everything's upside down. Our sin, our rebellion, man's sin and rebellion, it's even affected the animal creation. And Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. He's saying that is his purpose. But he adds on to that, I am chief. I am first. I am the foremost of all of those sinners is what he's saying. And why did he say that? Because two verses previous to that in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is what Paul said. He says, I, the apostle Paul, was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor against the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, no one has sinned greater than I have. And I know Brother Hamilton would always joke and say that he would say that and we should, but Paul really, he was the chief of sinners. So just if you would quickly, just turn back a few chapters to Acts 26. We just look and see what he was like. Acts 26, beginning in verse 9. He's sharing this same story here in Acts 26, and beginning in verse 9, we're cutting in on it, but he says, I verily thought with myself, I thought to myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue. And look what he says, I compelled, compelled them to blaspheme and being exceeding mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. It is hard to imagine when you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul acting like that. But he is saying he is like a madman possessed with destroying this church, possessed with the idea I am going to hunt these people down, whatever it takes. He didn't just persecute men either. He persecuted women, put them in jail. He's ruthless. He's breaking up households of Christians, and they're not resisting him. They're like lambs being led to the slaughter, torturing people to get them, compelling them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're seeing Paul at this point. He is filled with the devil. He is. He's got an antichrist spirit working through him. And you think, the apostle Paul, was like that at one time. So you go back to Acts 9, our text, and it says in verse 1 that he was yet still, that's what that word means, still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And it's saying that is after he had Stephen stoned, and it said it's after that he had made havoc of the church in Jerusalem. That means he was trying to devastate it, and he had. He devastated that church. All the saints in Jerusalem, it says in Acts 8, had to scatter to flee his persecution. And so it's telling us here in verse 9 that it's saying Paul wasn't finished. Oh, he wasn't done. He wasn't going to get satisfied. He was still breathing, threatening, and slaughter. And that King James said he was breathing out, threatening, and slaughter. Actually, the word means to breathe in. It's just what you do when you breathe. <laughs> and here's the point of all that is. His life's breath at that point was to slaughter and threaten God's people. That is what he lived and breathed for. The chief, the first, the greatest sinner. That's what he was all about. Yet, he goes on in 1 Timothy and he says it was because of that, because of who he was being that chief sinner, the greatest sinner, that he found mercy. 
what Scott was talking about. Because he wrote in 1 Timothy, he said, So that in me, as the foremost, as the chief sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. See, God is setting me up. Everyone knows what I did and what I'm all about. He said he's setting me up as an example for those who would believe on him for eternal life. And he's saying, God picked me for my great sinfulness to be a pattern, an example to all those that would follow. A pattern of a sinner that doesn't deserve it, finding mercy from the God of heaven. So it's a pattern, I believe, for all true conversions. That's what he's saying there. And so we find principles, which is what we're going to look at today, that should be evident in all conversions. So listen, everybody's not going to experience all the dramatic events that Paul did. Everybody's not going to have a bright light shining down. Everybody's not going to hear the audible voice of the Lord from heaven. Everybody's not going to look and see the risen Jesus Christ face to face because he saw his face. And not everybody does that. Most won't, as a matter of fact. But there are fundamental truths in his experience that are going to be true for anyone that's a Christian. He is the mold. And the importance of this whole experience he has here, it takes many verses for him to tell it. It is not told just once. It's told three times in the book of Acts. And Paul in his epistles many times goes back to that experience talking about it. It's just a tremendous time. So I believe if they got it three times in the book of Acts, and God, he's not looking to just fill up space. <laughs> we know that, right? So I think it's critical we understand it. And so Paul says many times in the New Testament that we're to follow his example. And I think this is a case right here. And the first thing we see... In this account that we're reading here, this event, is the total depravity of sinners. That's what we're seeing with Paul. Look back in verses 1 and 2. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether there were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And there is no mercy in this man at this point, is there? From the inside, he is totally wicked, consumed on the inside with destroying God's people. That's what we see here. Didn't matter if it was men or women. And look, the Bible presents to us, doesn't it? There are two kinds of sinners. And we really see that pretty well vividly illustrated and demonstrated in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I mean, we have the one son, he's obvious. And that's like a lot of us. I mean, you have to wonder whether he was a sinner. He was just an open, partying, womanizing sinner, right? And it's like, yeah, he needs to repent. I mean, that was my reputation in high school. I wasn't a good kid. Everybody's like, yeah, this girl up next door to my sister, man, if that guy can get saved, he needed to be saved. <laughs> I'm like, thanks a lot. But there's that kind of sinner, right? But then what do we have? We have the other ones that's a person that's obviously far from the father, the prodigal, right? We know that. But there's the other kind that seemed to be close to God, the elder brother. And that is the very deceptive kind of sinner because they serve in the father's house, but they don't have the father's heart. That's the difference. And that was Saul. So he's zealous. He's zealously serving the God of Israel, but he didn't have God's heart. But outwardly, he looked good. He said in Philippians 3, he says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, he said, I am blameless 
You look at the law and you look at me and I'm perfect. There is nothing you can accuse me of as far as what my outward conduct does. So he was a good kid. <laughs> you could say he never lied. He never stole anything. Always went to church. Never violated the Sabbath. He was there every day. Always honored his parents. Did all of those kind of things. Never violated that law. He said, I am blameless. Outwardly, you couldn't find any fault. He had the respect of the elders of his fellow Pharisees, those in his synagogue, and yet we know something, don't we? His heart was as wicked as it could be. Because here he later, I don't know how many of you have ever caught this when you read through the book of Titus, but in Titus 3, he admits what he was like before his conversion took place. And here's what he wrote in Titus 3, 3. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You listen to that? He's including himself in that group. He was in there. He said, we also, we, I'm with you all. That's the way I was. We also once. That was Paul. He says, I was enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I lived and malice and envy, hateful and hatred and being hateful. That was his heart before he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, some people don't want to admit it, and they just seem so nice. Well, he's just such a nice guy. But I'm telling you, that is all men's hearts before Christ, without exception. Because you see people, you meet people. I know somebody, the nicest person you'd ever want to meet. But you get them in the wrong corner and their true nature comes out and you don't want to be around it. And it gets worse as time goes on. Because that is all of men's hearts. And Jesus said to the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, he says, you people on the outside, so he'd have been talking to Paul, you appear beautiful. You appear like something we should respect and want to be like. He says, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. All uncleanness, that's the stuff that would defile a man, that in uncleanness that's on the inside. And Jesus says, where is that? He said, it's in the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. And let me ask you, is that your heart today? I know I'm speaking to somebody. I know I am. Do you have evil thoughts that you would be embarrassed for other people to know that you were thinking? Do you slander others? Because the Bible, Jesus says, that begins in the heart. You're lying, thieving. It begins here, in the heart, on the inside. And that's what he's saying. That's the problem. And so what age does that start? I mean, do you think it's possible for a little boy in here, 8 to 12 years old, to plot in his heart? to harm another little boy? I think so. And they're old enough to understand what I'm saying. That means they are sinners. It's showing what their heart is like. That's no small little thing, right? Or what about a little girl the same age? She just repeatedly lies. Jesus says it doesn't matter your age. It starts in the heart, doesn't it? No matter what your age is, whether you're 8 or 80, that's where sin is. 
to every young person in this room between the ages of 15 to 35. You know whether it's really in your heart to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you really do desire to read the word and pray and commune with him and serve him, or is your desire really to just social media, how you're going to get along in this world? Where, where is your heart really at? You know where it's really at. And God knows too. I would suggest to any young person, any person, actually read the life of George Mueller because he is a lot like the Apostle Paul. And I'm telling you, George Mueller is one of the most godly men ever born in this world. But for 20 years of his life, he was not that way. And I'll tell you what he did. He had a dad that had a lot of money, and he wants to set his son up. And he set his son up to go into the ministry. Wicked George, George Mueller. And you know why? Because the ministry, you got a steady income, you had a good income, and you had the respect of society. So old George Mueller, he's a theological student, a seminary student. He's going to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah. But you know what? He's getting good grades in school. That's what they said about that man. His one teacher's like, this guy here is a model student based on his grades, and outwardly he looked great. But you know what? He had a secret life of sin. He stole money from his father. His dad had a government job. He would steal that money and take it and go off on weekends and party. He would drink. He'd be with women. He was a liar. And by his own admission, George Mueller, though a seminary student, though having the respect of his seminary teachers, he said, when I look back, God was not in all of my thoughts. And maybe that's you in here today. You're here every meeting. You're here every meeting. You know the songs because we sing them. You can mouth the words. But in your heart, you know that you're where George Mueller was. And here's a fact. If you're not born again, you will be a slave to sin. No matter how much you try to act outwardly righteous, you are a slave to sin. Because there is only one way. There's only one path that God has given freedom from sin. And that is by the Holy Spirit and God sovereignly birthing in you a new nature that only He can do. It's not a matter we're going to, all this reformation, that's what George Mueller did. He'd go to communion and he, his conscience would bother him. And he'd say, man, I can't live like I'm living. It would last about a week and he's right back in his sin. Because the only way you can live above sin is with a new nature. If you're a slave of sin... You might need deliverance if it's bothering you. I'm not saying you're not born again, but you might want to think about that. You made a profession of faith, but you know in your heart you have no desire to be free from this sin. There's a problem there. Best thing you can do is be honest about it. So back to Paul. He appeared to be religious, but he had zero relationship with the living God. He had his life, and he was living it with his plans, his agenda, and his inward lust and hatred. And Paul was blind. He's going on that road to Damascus. Well, he might have seen the physical road, but he was a blind man. And listen, 1 John 2 says this, He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness, even until now. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and doesn't know whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. And Paul thought he was pleasing God. But darkness had blinded his eyes. He said himself in Titus 3.3, I was deceived, serving divers' lusts, living my life 
hating and in hatred. That was him. And so listen, we all, everyone in here, we need to examine our hearts. Isn't that what Paul said? Examine yourselves. See whether you be in the faith. See if you're disqualified by where you're at now. You can't go back 10 years, 20 years. Where are you now? We enslaved in lust. Are we living in malice with ill will towards others? Do we envy others? Do we hate others? Can't forgive somebody for a wrong they've done? And I'm saying the best thing we can do, any of us, no matter what our age, is just to be honest. Honest about where we're at. Paul, he admitted it later. I was full of hatred. I was very religious. But listen, I had my plans. He was looking for promotion, he was. And he said he excelled all the other Pharisees that were his age. And he had his agenda. He's going to drag off God's people. But listen, his plans and his agenda, like we sang about today, they weren't God's. And God had to do something, didn't he? So he's thinking he's doing the will with his plans, and he's on his journey with his plans and his ideas and what he's going to do. And God's not telling him to do that, even though he's thinking he's doing God a favor, and it's somehow gaining him his favor. He's making his own way. And here he is, we read in that account, it says he's approaching Damascus. He's getting close. It's a four- to five-day journey. He's almost there, going to carry out his plans. And then guess what happens? God, this is what salvation is. It's not Paul, like we said last week. It's not him planning to be called. It's not him one day planning, I think I'll get saved. No, no, he's going on his way, like all of us were. And all of a sudden, look what we have here in Acts 9.3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, it says, there shined round about him a light from heaven. He wasn't expecting that. He wasn't looking for it, but from that moment on, guess what's happened to Saul? He's forever changed, isn't he? God has come into his life. It's like, you think about it, a few years back, however many years ago that was, they had that Boston Marathon, and here everything's going along, and you think about the people, they were near the end of where that race is going to happen, and suddenly, bam! They weren't expecting it. They weren't looking for it. But what's going on with these people? Their lives, some of them, are changed forever. They're injured in a way. They'll never function like they used to. Some of them lost loved ones, were killed, never see them again. They weren't looking for it. And that's what's going on here with Paul. That's what happens in our salvation. God sovereignly steps into our lives. We're not looking for it. We're not asking for it. And it says that God has apprehended, he's apprehended Paul is what he's done here. That's the way Paul describes it in Philippians 3.12. He says, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He's saying, the Lord Jesus Christ apprehended me. And the word means he seized me. He reached down at that moment and seized me. That's what happened. Seized by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we sing that song here. One day, the Father of glory, he reached down with his righteous right hand, and he saved me. 
That's what he's done. I mean, I love that song. If you're a saved person in here, you know what I'm talking about. Listen, this message, if you're saved, it shouldn't be one where everybody's questioning their salvation. But for me, I'm going through this. I'm thinking, praise God, it's an encouragement to me because I realize this is what God has done for me. And it encourages me. Like Paul says, I want to press on for what I know he's apprehended me about. I know what's happened for me in my heart. And you all know what's happened or hasn't happened for you all in your hearts. So for some people, this should be an encouragement. Going back to your first love, like Paul said. And for others, you ought to realize, man, something's not right. I'm not fitting the pattern here. I might have cried. I might have made a profession of faith. But my life afterwards, it's not lining up. Something's not right. But he's apprehended. And how did he apprehend Paul? It says what in that verse? Suddenly. A light shined round about him. It surrounded him. It was noonday. You read, I have it here, but you have it in other towns. In the Middle East, when that sun is up at noonday, it is bright. And my wife is down in Florida enjoying this Florida sun, and she's saying that sun is so, if you've been down there this time, it is bright and hot. So 88 there is not 88 in Kentucky. Amen? We all know how that is, right? But he's saying, hey, they got the noonday sun there in Syria getting to Damascus. And he's saying there is a light. The Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God, it's totally gotten rid of the sun light. And this light of the glory of God is surrounding Paul. It's all around him. He's been apprehended. Greater than the noonday sun. That's what it's saying. It seized him. He's been seized. And so God has dramatically, hasn't he? He's broken into his plans. Paul had all these plans broken into his life. And I'm saying there's principles we get. So no, maybe I never had a great light shine like that, right? But that's the principle. That's the truth is that God will break into your plans and life as a sinner. And you'll never be the same when he does that, when he's got his hand on you. That is the truth. So we know later... Just biblical examples when you read Acts 16 with Lydia. Lydia didn't have all that, did she? I mean, they're going down. I've been by that river. There's a river down in Philippi. They would go down there for prayer. But look, the results are the same. Paul, God ordained this sovereignly, meets these women at that river, preaches the gospel. God opens her heart. That light shines. That woman, that seller of purple, was never the same after that. But it wasn't a light from heaven. But his light still shone in her heart. That's the principle. And her life was changed. God seized her. And then later in that chapter, you have the Philippian jailer. Now, he didn't have a great light. But what did he have that seized him? An earthquake. Oh, man. Got his attention that way. But still, both times, in both cases, it's the Apostle Paul bringing God's light and truth into these lives and hearts. And neither one of those two were ever the same again. And so however that happens to you, God can do it in a hundred ways where he breaks into your life. But you will be changed. And it may be suddenly or it may be over a period of time. But the truth is that God will overtake and seize you. I know, brother. Me and Greg do. This is his testimony. This is how it happened with him. This guy, he was going to go cheat on his wife. He didn't know the word fornication. Adultery. I mean, it's just the way you live from where he, the end of town he came from. And so he's driving to go meet his little woman on the side and his poor wife's sitting at home and she had gotten saved and was praying for him. And his testimony is he hears this audible voice. You stop and turn around. 
and he is literally in his car like this, and fear comes over him. And that's what he did. He stopped his car, turned around, went home, and that was the end of it. That's pretty dramatic. I'm like, man, if I had the audible voice, how could you ever backslide? I mean, honestly. Right? And so everybody's not like that, but there are cases like that, right? And maybe with you, it was just that still small voice that broke in and started bothering you. But for everyone that's a Christian, you have that knowing. You'll know that God's dealing with your life. He's stepped in. He's messing with you. All your plans, all your sins, you just can't enjoy them anymore. It's bothering you. Just something. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the hound of heaven after you like we talked about last week. All the love that will not let me go. He's after you. He's going to get you. So you're convicted. And listen, the only way that happens is it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul would always, constantly, he knew that. I was talking to Craig. You know, I, I heard this, somebody say this. Paul, if the Christians, and I'm sure they were, if they were following what Jesus said, and what did he tell them? He said, you pray for those that persecute you. Bless them. And like they said, Paul, being who he was, was probably the most prayed for person in the world at that time. Right? And so God answered that prayer. And he'd answered it by the Holy Spirit coming in. The Holy Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God moving. And so listen, Paul knows what happened to him, that it wasn't just lucky. I just happened to be on the right spot on that road, you know. <laughs> Lightning happened to come down. And, and uh, the wine I was drinking helped me hear a voice. I mean, it's not like that. So he knows. So what would he say? Hey, it's the anointing. It's the word that brings light. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that's what breaks hearts. That's how God moves in. And so he would pray, please pray for me when I go preach. When I go preach somewhere, pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, will anoint what I'm saying. Because that is the only way. It's not going to be my wisdom, my words. Paul's always saying, it's not my wisdom. And this guy was a genius. Literally a genius. By all standards. And that's what he would pray. Pray for me that the power of the Spirit would work through my preaching to open their eyes, he says in Acts, and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. So God has to step in sovereignly with his light to deliver anybody from darkness. Only God can do it. I hand out books to help you kind of know how to get a conversation. I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that, but ultimately, right, it's got to be God and His Holy Spirit blessing the word that you're sharing with somebody. That's the only way it's going to happen. It's not going to be our evangelistic approaches, our worldly wisdom, our force of our, you know, you just frustrate me. How come you can't see it? And new Christians all the time, they, God has done that work in them, and they want to share it with their family and friends, and they just get frustrated. They can't understand. How can you not see this? It's so clear to me now. And they forget you were in that same boat just a week ago not seeing or understanding a thing, right? So look, turn over to 2 Corinthians, if you would, please. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. saying only God, only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, Paul writes, If our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded their minds of them which believe not. Look what he says, lest 
the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Verse 5, he says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Look in verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So based on what we just read, who is the one that is blinding unbelievers? It's Satan, is it not? It's not like they're blind with an organic blindness that a surgery would take care of. No, it's a living being has blinded them, blinded their eyes, doing everything he can to keep them blinded. That's what it's saying. So do we think in any way that our power or wisdom in the natural is going to somehow free these people? There's no way. God has to break through. Isn't that what we read? And only God can. Look at that. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, verse 6. God, Paul says, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. <laughs> he's saying only God can take that gospel and break into our hearts. It's a creative miracle, he says. He's going back to Genesis when God had to speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let there be light into darkness, and there was light. And he's saying it's the same thing when that gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a creative miracle takes place. That light comes. And what is in the light? It's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's, he's not referring back to his own experience. I don't know what he's talking about. But when that light comes, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and it begins to shine in your heart, you know what will happen to you? You'll be humbled, and you'll be in the dust. Paul was a proud, strutting person, but when he had that encounter, you will never see him like that again because that's what will happen. You won't be that arrogant sinner, and when you see the glory of God's holiness, it will affect you. Look in Acts 9.4. Look what it says. So suddenly there shined a light bound about him from heaven, and what does it say in verse 4? And he fell to the earth. He fell to the earth. Literally saw the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Looked into the face of the risen Christ. What, what could that have been like? I have no idea. But it's the same experience. It fell to the earth. The same experience the apostle John had on the island of Patmos. He saw the risen Lord. And he said this. John said this. His countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's repeatedly all through the Bible when people encounter the living God. They think either he's going to kill me because I've seen him in his holiness and it's revealed their sin, or they fall dead and lose all their strength. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, and he said, Woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, is what Isaiah said. And so if our eyes, spiritual eyes, that is, truly see the king, it will bring conviction, <laughs> conviction of our sin. And we'll be like Peter. I always like this. He's out there, old Peter the fisherman, old Peter the party boy. Old Peter probably had a nasty mouth, probably liked to drink all the time with his buddies. That's the impression you get when you read 1 Peter. And Peter's out with the Lord. And he tells him, go set that net over that side, and they bring that fish in. And Peter is convicted by his sin, and he says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. 
He's getting a glimpse of his glory. And it said James and John, they're, they're just amazed. They're in awe. They're all convicted by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that happen to you? You ever had that in your life? When God's holiness is there and you see by the word and by the Holy Spirit, maybe it's preaching, maybe it's reading your Bible, and you realize what you're really like, what you were like, it should bring you to the dust. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Once he's got you, once he's apprehended you, once he's surrounded you by that light, brought you to the dust, he'll never let you go if you're his. Because here's what will happen. You will have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens here in verse 4. He fell to the earth, and then what happens? It says he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecuted thou me? He's seen the face of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and now he begins to speak to him personally. And listen, Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, had never known a personal relationship with God his entire life up to this point. He did not know God, had no relationship whatsoever. His religion was totally outward. He prayed his prayers were totally one-sided. If it's like the Pharisee in Luke, he's praying to himself, Lord, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like these praying to himself because God's not hearing that kind of prayer. And that's what Saul would have been like. But now he's hearing the risen Lord Jesus Christ speak his name, Saul, Saul. And I'm saying that's a pattern for all of us right there. Maybe not audibly, but John 10, it says this, Jesus says, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So it says right there that he calls his sheep by name. And have you heard him call your name? Maybe not audibly, but inwardly. Let me ask you, have you had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? And I've had people come and they want me to pray for them to be saved. And I'll say, I'm not going to pray for you to be saved. And I'll tell you why. Because salvation is a personal encounter with Jesus. You pray to him. You confess. I'll be right here praying with you. But it's a relationship you need to start with him now. If you've heard his voice, you need to speak to him. I'm not the one that's going to have that relationship as time goes on. But listen, when that happens, when you have that personal encounter, Christianity is no longer a philosophy. It's a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some philosophy, you, oh, I don't like what they say or don't say and analyze and everything. It's no longer something that you analyze. It's something you experience. With the risen Lord, a personal encounter. God has come to you, Saul, Saul. And put your name in there. I don't want to embarrass anybody by starting to say your name, but have you heard his name? And here's what happens. Here's what happens. When he calls your name and he has your attention, the next thing he does is he's going to deal with your sin. Because that's what he did with Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
What was his great sin? It was his religious zeal. He's the persecutor. And so when God calls you, I don't know how it worked for you, but it worked for me. He's dealing with some major sin in my life. I had a thousand things I needed to get that's there, and it's still coming out. I'm realizing, oh, God, I didn't realize I was that wicked. And it comes. But then there were some things he's like, you've got to give this up. Why persecutest thou me? What's the sin in your life when you came to the Lord? What was he dealing with you about? Because that's what's going to happen. He'll bring you face to face with your sin in a personal way. You know, when God confronted David through the prophet after his sin with Bathsheba, you know how he confronted him? It was personal. He said this to him. He says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me. They had a personal relationship, and that's the way he dealt with him. He said, David, you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And God told Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said to David, you have despised me. So these men, they're seeing their lives and their sin, not in some general way. Everybody's a sinner. No, it's a personal thing. They have sinned against the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin, he says, has been done against me. So Saul's been apprehended, seized by the Lord, surrounded by his glory, and is looking in his face. And he realizes at that point that God sees him personally. Saul, Saul is the voice he's getting. And everything he's done, he knows now there is no hiding. It's a personal encounter. Why are you persecuting me? His hatred for the Lord Jesus, his self-righteousness, his blasphemy, his cruel treatment of God's people. It's all coming out. All of his sins at this point are being exposed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the light of God's glory. And God knows him by name. He's seen all that he's done. And that's what he does in the salvation of every Christian. Because you realize at that point that God knows my life. I can't hide it anymore. I've been running and hiding. But when it time comes and God seizes hold of you and brings you into his light and calls you by his name, it's all exposed. All things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And you'll know I can't ever get away from his gaze. It's like Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. Or if I make my bed in hell, David says, behold, you're there. I can't hide anything. You've searched me and known me and called me by name. That's what's going on here. So has God, let me say, has he called you? Have you heard him call your name? Has he exposed your sin? And if you've gotten away from him, like Paul said the other night, you'll still hear him call your name. And he'll be asking about the sin that's taken you away from him. Can you hear his voice? Nevertheless, we read the other night, I have somewhat against thee because you have left your first love. That's what he'll be saying to you. Saying that in your name. He may be speaking to you right now, wanting you back. The answer is to repent. And in verse 5, it says this, 
Saul surrounded by that blinding light, having seen the face of the Lord, his sin exposed. He asked this in verse 5, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the answer shocked him. Look what the answer is. It would have shocked him. Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You think about that. You put yourself in Saul's shoes at that point because his soul purpose in life was to destroy any remembrance of the man Jesus of Nazareth and all of a sudden now he is face to face with this person he has hated been out to destroy thought he was an imposter a blasphemer he's like how can you call this man the Messiah when we know that he was charged as a criminal and hung on a tree whether he's guilty or not Paul would say I don't care all I know is the Bible says that cursed is the man that hangs on a tree. The Messiah would never have that happen. This man is an imposter. And Paul said, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, here he is. He's looking in his face now. And he had to have this realization when he's hearing, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you hate the one you've been persecuting. And all of a sudden at that point, Paul, you think he had a total realization, I have been 100% wrong. 100% wrong about everything I've been doing. And he had to remember back Gamaliel, his teacher, the one he sat at his feet. In Acts 5, what did he say? He said, you got to be careful what you're doing with this sect. Because you may be found to be fighting against God. And Paul realizes at that point, that is what I have been doing. I've been fighting against God Almighty. He's looking at me right now, the very one I was fighting. Looking into the face of Jesus. And he's realizing his mind, everything would have come to him in an instant. Everything about this man is true. His miracles, his virgin birth, his sinless life. His death that he took in my place, and most importantly, I'm seeing right here, his resurrection that I said was not true. That his disciples had stolen away his body. He would agree with that, but he's saying, here he is right now. I cannot deny any of it. I've been wrong. Those are the facts. I've been persecuting the Lord of the universe. And it would have pierced his soul, wouldn't it? It would have pierced mine. Fear and astonishment. And he would also had to go back in his mind that time and seen the faces of all those people that he imprisoned, men and women, people he tortured to blaspheme. And he's looking on their faces and he's saying, I'm seeing this peace and joy and love that I never knew. And it's all coming from this one that I'm looking at now because that's the way he's looking at me now. He would have realized that. These people, they prayed for me as I tortured them. But they got peace and joy in the face of death. And every time he would have said, I left the scene uncomfortable with that. Because what did Jesus tell him? He says, it's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the pricks. And a prick was a long stick you used. If you had a cow or you whatever, a cow you bought, and that's how you kept him going the way you wanted to go. And you, that cow kicked against that prick, he's going to injure himself. They learn not to do that. So those cows start going, and he's saying, Paul, I've been leading you. I've been convicting you along the way here. You've been struggling with me, fighting me. 
got this intense struggle on the inside. But what do we see with that? There is the power of God that will make any sinner submit. Isn't that what we see? That's what we have to believe he's going to do for some sinners that we're praying for to see saved, right? Because God's call is irresistible. But I'm saying, Paul still, when he's seeing this take place, he's got to realize this man, Stephen, that I just saw stoned. I'm seeing this same glory I'm seeing now is on his face. And he's praying for me. Oh, I had to lay him in the dust. And he's saying, you've persecuted me. And Paul's thinking, when I stoned Stephen, I was stoning Jesus. And that's what happens. When, you know what? We could take comfort in that, can't we? That when someone's given us a hard way to go because of our Christianity, we could think, guess what? The Lord's looking down, and they're doing that to him. And he will come and help us. Right? And it's the same with everybody in our church. Like Paul said, we've got to realize everybody in our church, if they're filled with the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, what we do to them, we're doing to him. When we slander them, we're slandering him. We've got to look at each other that way. And it's not always easy to do. I'm Jesus whom you persecuted. And here's the final step in his conversion, verse 6. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? That's what he said. He's crushed. And he's helpless at this point before the Lord. Trembling, it says. He trembling and astonished. There is a holy fear there with what he's witnessing, what's going on. He's seeing the glory of the Lord. And yet, it says, he's astonished. And I think there's many things he's probably astonished about. The whole event would have him astonished, right? But here he is. I think he's astonished that the Lord Jesus Christ has called him by name, and there's no condemnation or judgment in his voice. And Paul had to be thinking, that is what I deserved. God should have snuffed me out. I don't deserve what's happening to me at this point. I know I didn't deserve mercy because he's thinking I didn't show any to any of God's people. No mercy. And yet mercy and grace are being given to me. That encounter for him had to be astonishing. It's the unexpected. He's hearing the voice of grace in his life calling him right there. And we sing the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now can see. And here's what Paul experienced. was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And that, I believe, was Paul's song. He came face to face as a vile sinner with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, naked and exposed as his sin. He knows the Lord. All of that's being exposed in that light, knowing that he deserves death, trembling like the Philippian jailer. Yet, Jesus speaks his name, relieves his fear, pours out his grace, like it says in Zechariah 12. It says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, the Jews. They'll realize we made a mistake, but grace and supplication is poured out. And that's what I believe happened to Paul here. And I believe that's what happens to anybody that's a Christian. That same principle. Yeah, God will bring you to you. He'll apprehend you, call you by name, show you your sin. You've got to be brought to repentance, right? But you'll look and you'll see there is hope 
in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his blood has forgiven me. He's put away my sin. And that's what we were talking about earlier. That's what Scott was talking about. And here's the great thing. Paul was a transformed man, was he not? <laughs> he went from the violent persecutor. Here's the Paul we know, the most gentle, humble, loving man that ever walked the face of this earth outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how many of us could tell people, follow me as I follow the Lord? Yet Paul could say that. Man, filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, a transformed life. And here's the good news. Anyone in here, if he did it for Paul, Paul says, I'm the form, I'm the example. If he did it for him, of all people, he'll do it for you. He'll do it for me. He'll do it for your loved one because no one is beyond God's grace. And so what Paul does here in verse 6 is he makes Jesus the Lord of his life. Confesses him as Lord. Lord, what will you have me to do? And so when he realized that marvelous, undeserved grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, he committed himself to him to do whatever he asked him to do. And guess what? Paul did it because Jesus sent him in some really hard places to the point Paul's like praying, please take this thorn away from me. He says, oh, no, Yo, my grace will get you through that, Paul. And you'll know to trust me. And we're going to need that, aren't we? And so we're going to need to have that encounter. We're going to need to go back and remember and build on these experiences that we've had. That we've had these experiences like the Apostle Paul. And know that, hey, we have seen, we can experience the presence and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will speak to us. He's personally called us. And we need to build on that and enlarge that in our lives. Right? And take comfort and courage from that. And we'll be able to say, with a fully surrendered life, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Isn't that what we want to say? Don't we want to follow the Apostle Paul and live the life he lived as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he said. What an example to be set down. So let me ask you, have you had that personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus? Has God apprehended you? Has he seized you? Has he altered your plans and purposes? Have you seen the face of the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe not literally, but in his word. Have you experienced that? Has God brought you face to face with your sin in his holiness? And not only that, have you experienced his forgiving grace? It's all right there. But if he's spoken to you today, and you know that's not your thing, it says today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. If he's speaking to you, that's him drawing you. Just respond. Today, it says, is the day of salvation. Because there is one day, there's going to be a day that not one of us is going to avoid. There's going to be a day, one day, that we will all literally see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. And he's going to say to every one of us, I am Jesus. And so if you hear it now, if you hear him saying that now, don't harden your heart. Give yourself to him. And if you've gotten away, let's get back. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful and we thank you, Lord, for the example you've given us of the Apostle Paul that we can see how you work your marvelous grace, your sovereign grace by your Holy Spirit, Lord, 
how you've dealt with us, how you called us and loved us from all eternity past, Father. And at a point in time, you apprehended us, you seized us, you caused us with that irresistible grace. You've called us to yourself. And as we said last week, Lord, you will finish the work that you've started in us, and we're just trusting you for that. And we know, Lord, that since you have apprehended us, we can press on for that which we've been apprehended for, to come into conformity to your Son, to be like Jesus, that we'll see him face to face one day. And I pray that he will say for all of us in here, Lord, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, and will cast our crowns at your feet then. And I thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.